Is it on? It's on now. Okay. We'll see how we do now. I feel as though I'm supposed to be doing a Sinatra retrospective or something with this. Okay, Father, help us to move forward into your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What does a disciple look like? What are we aiming to make? What, more importantly, should we be aiming to be? And I know of no text that pictures this more truly, more powerfully, more convictingly, more challengingly than a particular story that appears in three of the four Gospels. It appears in Matthew, Mark, and John. Some argue that a text in Luke is the same event. I don't think it is. But anyway, we're going to look at Mark's version and then draw knowledge from John as well. So Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. I would just invite you to look at this text from four questions that I want to pose to it. The first is, what did this gift mean to Mary? The second is, what did it mean to the disciples? Because we know from John's account in John 12 that these people criticizing her were not strangers. These were the disciples of Jesus. Thirdly, what did this gift mean to Jesus? And then finally, obviously, as we always must ask, what should it mean to us? First of all, what did this gift mean to Mary? It's easy for us in our cultural setting to completely miss the power of what's going on here because we live in a world so profoundly different than the one in which Mary lived. Uh, all of the benefits, <clears throat> the rights, the, the liberties that we enjoy today that are often traced back to Greco-Roman culture were not from Greco-Roman culture, but rather from the outworking of the gospel. 
Greco-Roman culture. In Mary's day, she belonged to two overlapping cultures. She was an Israelite living within that culture, but they were under Rome. Rome exercised tremendous authority and power and had huge influence. So these two overlapping cultures of Greco-Roman culture and her own Jewish culture. <clears throat> Within Greco-Roman culture, women were property. They were owned. They had no rights. We talk about Roman law and all the wonderful rights that came from Roman law. Those rights only applied to adult male Roman citizens. No one else. The reason that Paul could not be crucified, but rather had his head cut off, was because he was a Roman citizen and so enjoyed certain rights as an adult male. But women had no rights under Roman law. The law was patria potestas, patria father potestas potentate. The father was the potentate of his family, and if his wife or his children displeased him, he could put them to death. They had no recourse. That was the state of a woman in the Roman culture. You say, yes, but she was living within Israel. Well, it was a little better, but never forget that Moses gave men the right to divorce their wives for any reason as long as they gave them a certificate of divorce. A woman in Israel could not divorce her husband for any reason. Why? Because she belonged to him. And so a woman grew up with her only hope of being valued and having some kind of life to look forward to if she could make a good marriage and have children. Those were the two things expected of every young woman as she grew, to marry well and then to bring children, especially male children, into that family. And failing either of those two things, she was considered a person of little value. That's why in the Bible, women without children were in agony. I mean, it's sad in any age, but, but this was the one great expectation. And so to, to be a success, to be valued, to be honored, you had to marry and have children, okay? This Mary, we know again from John's gospel, was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And so we know something about her situation in the home. We know that she was somewhat under the critical thumb of her sister, Martha. And any young woman growing up with her big sister who wanted to give her orders and tell her what she needed to do around the house would be living for the day that she could get out of there, have her own home, get on with her life. In those days, people did not marry for love. Romantic love came in the Middle Ages. Now, I'm sure people looked on each other and loved each other, and we have Song of Solomon and other beautiful pictures of attraction and love. But ordinary people had to marry as their families arranged for those marriages. And for a woman, what made her attractive was that she had a dowry. That was what was going to enable her to marry. And we find that Mary had a very valuable dowry. And it's remarkable because 
Mary was not from a wealthy family. How do we know that? If you've ever been to Israel and have gone to the excavations of Bethany, which is now just a little suburb right outside of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, really, we see that the houses were very small, very plain. In fact, there is a home that tradition says was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it's a very small place. We also know from the biblical account that they did not have money because remember Martha's complaint? She was in the kitchen preparing all by herself and she wanted to know why Jesus didn't tell Mary, go in there and help your sister. If they had had any money whatsoever, they would have had servants helping them. So we know that they didn't have money and yet somehow Mary had been given this incredibly valuable dowry. We're told that it was worth more than 300 denarii. What does that mean? A denarius, singular, was what a person was paid for one day of work. If you take out the 52 Sabbaths of the year, you have 300 work days. This was worth more than a year's salary. Now stop and think for a moment of something in your home or something that you own, tangible asset that is worth more than a year's salary. Only my house. I don't have anything in that house worth more than a year's salary. You may, but I sure don't. I think most people don't. This was an incredibly valuable gift. And Mary has been listening to Jesus who has been telling his disciples all along, I am on my way to Jerusalem. My enemies are going to take me. They're going to deliver me over to death. I'm going to die, but fear not, in three days I will rise. And as we'll see in a moment, the disciples have refused to listen. They've got another agenda. We'll talk about that in a moment. Mary, whenever we see her, seems to be the only one of the disciples whose posture is always at Jesus' feet, listening. And so she understands what he's facing. And she's the only one who responds. And her response is, it's just staggering. Uh, I know myself, and if I had been deeply moved and had been the only one who understood what was happening, I might have said, it sounds as though things are really going to get hard when you get into Jerusalem. And I just want you to know that if you, if you need a good lawyer, I've got something of value that we can borrow against. Or maybe if I'd been deeply moved enough, I would have gone back and very carefully uncorked it and tried to measure out a tenth of it and, and then carefully cover it back up so that Nothing would evaporate. If it had been mission conference, I might have taken out another 5 or 10% on top. But Mary does something just staggering. She takes this treasure, which is her future. Her only hope of ever fulfilling what had been her hopes and dreams. And in one irrevocable act, she smashes it, breaks, breaks the alabaster container. 
and then just pours it out profligately on Jesus. And for a moment, that fragrance would have filled the room. But in a, in a few moments, the, the door would have opened, breeze would have blown through, it would have begun to waft away on the breeze. And besides, olfactory shut down. I mean, you can only smell something like that for a short time. Before an hour's gone, there'd be no evidence of what she'd done. What it meant to Mary was she saw him going to his death to give his life. And she was saying the only way she knew to say, I give my life to you. I go with you. I entrust myself, my future, my hopes, my dreams. I'm yours. And I've now, I've joined you on this journey. What did it mean to the disciples, the big guys, the guys who were always standing by Jesus looking so smart, and then as soon as they got in the room, said, what in the world were you talking about? What did that parable mean? But, uh, the guys who, all the way from Caesarea Philippi to this moment at Bethany, while Jesus was telling them again and again on the road that he was going to Jerusalem to die, they were arguing over which of them would be greatest when they got to Jerusalem. James and John actually got their mother to go to Jesus, to ask for the seats of honor at his right and left hand. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Because he knew when he was glorified, it would be when he was lifted up. They were asking for the places at his right and left hand on the crosses around him. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm to drink? You will drink it. And they would, but not yet. The disciples said, what a waste. What a tragic waste. Leave it to a woman. If only she'd consulted us, we could have explained to her about keeping the principle, living off the interest, about doing things wisely. There are so many things we could have done strategically with this incredible gift that she's now just, you know, she spent the principle, it's gone, she's got nothing to give. That was a colossal waste. Don't be surprised, especially young people here, if someday God tugs your heart and gives you a passion to go someplace difficult, someplace out, outside of your family's hopes and dreams for you, if they say, no, not that. <laughs> we love your heart, we love what you're thinking, but don't go there. That's too dangerous, don't go there. That's too difficult. We didn't pay for your education for you to go and do this. I have, in 45 years since my ordination, I can't tell you how many times I have seen families who were strongly supportive of global mission, who gave generously and considered the missionaries heroes when it was other people's children. The moment their children, who'd had missionaries in the home and heard their parents sing the praise and and tell the stories, now want to join that, that band of people. And the parents begin to backpedal and go, you, you can't take my grandchildren to the other side of the world. What a waste. 
It is the church that far too often sees. I'll give one story, try to keep it vague because he's, he's gone now. I hope he's with the Lord. He's known as a great leading Christian businessman and philanthropist in a church I served years ago. And uh, these people were on the boards of major Christian colleges and uh, Christian missions, and they were known for their philanthropy, gave millions to missions. And the older sons uh, followed their dad in very successful business careers and were on boards and giving away. But their dad came to see me and said, I, I really would like to talk to you about my youngest. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed and uh, will never be able to do what his brothers have done. Do you think I should be encouraging him toward the mission field? I said, you mean to do what Jesus did? to do what our heroes did. You know, do you hear yourself? Not just the world, but the church will especially surprise us by saying, what a waste. Whether it's when a church decides to give a significant amount to global mission elsewhere, rather than spending it all right here on us, it is it is the false disciple who says, what a waste, because the implication of that is that some things are just too valuable to give to Jesus. And I would ask you this morning, as I ask myself every time I read this text, what in my life, what in your life, do we simply cherish too much to ever let go? in order to follow Jesus wherever he calls. What did the gift mean to Jesus? Leave her alone. <laughs> says, I love it. Why are you bothering her? She has done something beautiful for me. Something beautiful for Jesus. What, what could make a life of greater value than that. Something beautiful for Jesus. And then, then he says, and, and this is so helpful too, he says, she did what she could. God will never say to you and me, if only you had more, if only you were smarter, if only you were more gifted, if only you'd been born into a different situation, I could use you greatly, but this is all you've got. The reason that it was something beautiful for Jesus was because she did what she could. That was it. And so it was beautiful. What should it mean to you and me? I'm almost done. Jesus then says something very perplexing. He says, I tell you, wherever the gospel goes, in the whole world, what she has done will be told of her. I used to read that and think, I've hardly ever heard that text preached. <laughs> Except by people who preach through the Bible, I never heard anybody choose to take that. You know, what did Jesus mean wherever the gospel goes? 
And then as I got older in pastoral ministry and would puzzle over this, I realized that Jesus only left two memorials. And I love Mark's positioning of this text and Matthew as well because it's followed by the other memorial, his institution of the Lord's Supper. His two memorials were, do this in remembrance of me and tell this in remembrance of her. Why those two things? Do this in remembrance of me is obvious to us. There we have depicted, enacted, visibly, tactily, tangibly, moving the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. And it's not simply a memorial. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, do you not know that the bread we break, the cup we drink, that these are, are, are a participation, a koinonia in the body and blood of Christ. There's in some way when we receive these elements through faith, we grow strong again through the gift of Christ, his sacrifice and his victory for us. Do this in remembrance of me. Tell this in remembrance of her. Why? Because it is faith that receives the gift. It is God's grace as well. And what does faith look like? What does the faith of a disciple look like? What is God looking for from us? We so often get into arguments over faith and works. I was married to a Jewish woman. I can tell you right now that to Jewish people, they don't care what you say. They're watching what you do to see whether your words have any meaning. And so clearly in Scripture, it is the obedience of faith that demonstrates faith. Someone who says, I believe all of this. I'm just not ready to make him Lord and follow him, doesn't yet believe. They may be born again, they may have started the journey, but they're not on the journey of discipleship. Jesus always said, follow me. What shall I do? Follow me. This isn't, I can't give this to you in a little booklet with a few questions. You want to be my disciple? Follow me. Don't turn back. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. And Jesus, with all of these disciples he was pouring his life into, and who at Pentecost, by God's grace, would find their lives transformed, but first they needed, by running away from him, to discover what utter failures they were and to become, I'm sure, quite hopeless before Christ went them in his majestic grace and brought them back and called them back and filled them with his spirit. Mary was the first to see and follow. And he says, don't ever stop telling her story because this is something beautiful for me. This is what I want you to be aspiring to by grace, not by works, but by grace working through us. Paul said in Galatians, the great Magna Carta of Christian freedom, the only thing that matters is faith working itself out through love. That's Mary. She loved so deeply. So what should it mean to you and me? At the end of the day, you and I are going to stand before Jesus. 
and we'll discover that our lives were either a waste, a tragic waste, or something beautiful for him. Because by his grace, we had done what we could, all of grace. May God, in his majestic grace, make you and make me something beautiful for Jesus.